0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. One of the first members of Albert Zahab family, introduced in his memoir, Concepcion, and immigrant family's fortunes, is his uncle Spanky, a baggage handler in San Francisco's airport. Spanky emigrated to the United States from his home country, the Philippines, where he lived a very different life as a rock star, one of the founding members of VST and Co, one of the country's most famous bands. That's just one of the family members Albert Saha profiles in Concepcion, published by Riverhead Books earlier this year, which traces the lives of generations of Filipinos and Filipino Americans trying to find a better life for themselves, navigating the ups and downs of American society and politics. We're joined again. By Helen Lee. Helen, would you like to say a few words about yourself?
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Helen. I am a freelance journalist previously based out of Asia, but now relocated back in the States. And I'm really excited to be joining uh, this conversation today with Albert.
1: Albert Samaha is an investigative journalist and inequality editor at BuzzFeed News, whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Village Voice, San Francisco Weekly, and The Riverfront Times, among other outlets. A Whiting Foundation Creative Nonfiction Grant recipient, he is also the author of Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood and Football in a Changing American Inner City, which was a finalist for the 2019 Penn ESPN Literary Sports Writing Award and winner of the New York Society Library's 2019 Hornblower Award. In this interview, the three of us will talk about immigration, U.S.-Filipino relations, class, and how that all relates to the immigrant experience, both in general and regarding the many members of Albert's family. So, Albert, I want to Start maybe with kind of an obvious question, but what drove you to kind of write about your family and so many generations of your family?
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to speak about this. I, you know, I, th- I think it was as I got older and and got to the age uh, my, my elders were when they migrated to America, uh, I think I became more and more curious about that decision. I think growing up um, as a child of immigrants, I was very much immersed in that classic immigrant mythology of always moving forward to the, to the better place, leaving behind um, a troubled land for the exceptional nation, the promised land. Um, and so it kind of come to take for granted um, the, 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 the difficulty of the decision they must have faced in the moment and, and all the forces that led to their decision to leave the Philippines uh, for the United States. Um, And around that same time, you know, I I was seeing that my elders were struggling, um, that they hadn't escaped a lot of uh, the the financial setbacks uh, that they experienced during the 2008 crash. Um, And I think that all just forced me to reflect on whether this was indeed the best place for us, whether it was the right decision for us to leave um, what had been middle class, upper class uh, circumstances in the Philippines uh, for a more working class existence in America uh, and why we felt the need to leave um, in the first place. So
1: could you maybe run through, again, kind of big picture, some of the history of about the immigration from the Philippines to the United States?
0: Yeah, it's a long, long history. And if you want to go all the way back to the first Filipinos to end up on North America, it was uh, the deckhands that worked on the Manila Galleon um, during the uh, Spanish colonial era. Uh, the The earliest known Filipinos to make it to the U.S. were people that jumped ship in Acapulco, made their way east and ultimately landed um, in New Orleans, which was the site of the first um, Filipino settlement in the U.S., Fast-forwarding through a lot of colonial history, um, once the U.S. took colonial control over the Philippines in the 19 um, early uh, turn of uh, the 20th century, um, they kind of get, they gave Filipinos special status. That while they were closing the doors to other Asian immigrants, um, which uh, a process that started with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s, uh, because the Philippines was the territory of the U.S they got special treatment. And so they were granted visas to study in the U.S. They were granted visas to work in the U.S. And in fact, because America had been excluding uh, Japanese, Chinese, and other Asian immigrants, they had a labor shortage. And so Filipinos were often the people who, who filled those labor shortages. So that was sort of the first wave of Filipino immigration into the U.S. Um, but the, the wave that eventually brought my family over was after World War II um, when the Philippines is an independent nation. Um, the first of my bloodline to make it to the States was my grand aunt, Caridad. Who um, got a visa because she was part of the underground resistance uh, fighting the Japanese occupation for the Allies? Uh, she got a job with the Army uh, Veteran Administrations Department. Um, they transferred to San Francisco. Uh, she married another Filipino immigrant. Uh, they 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 bought a house that that now continues to to be in my family. Um, and my grandparents, though they could only watch from the inside, they could only watch from the outside because it wasn't until 1965 that the doors um, opened uh, for Filipinos and. Every other immigrant group outside of Northern and Western Europe, uh, with the with the passage of the Immigration Act that that eliminated uh, race based quotas, uh, that's when my grandparents got their visas um, and began the process of of moving our entire family, my mom's generation, to the states.
2: Thanks for giving us a rundown of that uh, dynamic and family history. I wanted to ask a question about kind of the writing process, since we're gonna dive a little bit more into the different stories. Sometimes writing about family, at least for me, as a writer, can can be a strange space, headspace, emotional space. It can feel sometimes, it, it takes courage to write about family in an intimate way. Um, when you were first approaching writing this book, were there any sort of mental hurdles that you had to overcome? Or what was your mind space initially that uh, that foster that gave you the environment to write about family?
0: Yeah, I think I think the the biggest hurdle was figuring out what my own role as a narrator would be um, my my uh, tactics or my approach for writing about my family. Um, I wanted to just use the tools I already had in my toolbox, the tools I was most familiar with, just from you know a decade of being an investigative reporter. You know, I've I've written about many other people's families. I, I've, I've shared and reported on intimate details of of, of traumatic and, and joyful and and, and dramatic um, events in the lives of other people um, and, and so to sort of shift the gaze to my family in some ways felt quite natural because it was like if, if i'm going to um, tell other people stories uh, with the sensitivity that their stories require um, i can simply apply that lens to my own family and i already sort of had the tools for knowing how do we address complicated topics um, how do we write about people in ways that they can feel um, both honored and and represented accurately? Um, obviously, there is more complicating factors because with my family, you know, if if I am if I am writing a story about someone else's family and they end up hating me because they don't like how they came out, you know, that's one thing. But I obviously didn't want my family to hate me after the story came out, so it, it does kind of linger in the back of my mind. Um, am, am I uh, making sure I'm doing them justice. am I'm making sure I'm, I'm fact checking and running everything by them, um, so that sort of adds a one sort of complication to the fact that there is a long term relationship I intend to maintain with my with my elders and cousins and my mother um, moving forward. Uh, but I think the more complicated question um, narratively was was how to inject myself because I'm really uh, you know I've been unfamiliar with writing in first person. I, I was all about. Um, Pointing the lens um, at other people, um, so to kind of real to kind of figure out how to develop my own voice as a narrator, um, and and to what degree I wanted to be present uh, as a guide for the reader. Um, that was a, a process that just evolved over time as I slowly realized that um, this story was less a story about immigrants and immigration and and more a story about the second generation and about the children of immigrants and about the aftermath of immigration. And I think once I came to that realization that this was a story about the second generation, uh, it became much more clear to me that the perspective, the fundamental perspective had to come um, from me and my cousins and my generation, um, looking up, looking backwards at our elders. And uh, We
1: do have a question about kind of the the, the second generation um, experience, but I want to kind of go back to um, talking about your elders first. Um, Essentially, your your parents' generation. Obviously, there's there's your mother, um, who becomes a flight attendant, travels around the world. Um, There's obviously your Uncle Spanky, who is a rock star in the Philippines, and you go through kind of his experience being a rock star, but then he decides to move to the United States. Um, I guess, why did your parents' generation kind of make the choices they did to leave the Philippines and go to the United States? And then how did they grapple with life in the U.S. once they got once they got there?
0: I think the roots of the decision stem from the mythology of America, you know, that their parents grew up in schools designed by Americans with American teachers and American textbooks, and they were raised on stories of America as the exceptional nation, as the nation that welcomes immigrants, um, that provides opportunities unavailable anywhere else. Um, And and so they were raised in an atmosphere where even when they were successful, even when my grandfather was um, an attorney and my grandmother was an accountant at the Philippine Central Bank and and, and they had a bunch of maids and drivers and a boat, um, they still were setting their sights on America. Um, which, you know, I, I think when I was growing up, I, I had sort of assumed that they had just left because of the dictatorship, the, the Ferdinand Marcos dictatorship. Um, and, and while that played a role in making conditions worse for them and, and, and leading to a bit of a financial decline during their years there, um, it was only once I began to report out my family story that I learned that, um, that the plans to leave the Philippines were set in motion um, even before Ferdinand Marcos became a president and became a dictator um, because it was just the way they were raised. It was sort of, sort of just this expectation that this is the next step um, in, in the ascent of, of any family of upward mobility. Uh, and I think by the time they got here, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that they expected it would be easy, right? It, I think um, most immigrants understand that they will be, you um, having to withstand a setback, they will have to start fresh in a new land. And I don't think they came in naive, I don't think they came in starry eyed, even though they they, they had high hopes in America. uh, I think they came in expecting it to be difficult, but I think it ended up being more difficult and more complicated um, than they knew. because I think that's just the nature of understanding America, right? That was like for me and my cousins growing up in a country where the stories in our textbooks and the stories uh, we were hearing in presidential speeches uh, did not align with the stories we were hearing in the hip hop songs that, that, that our favorite rappers were singing or the backstories of our favorite athletes who had come from underprivileged circumstances and faced lifetimes of oppression. Um, but for the elder generation, you know, none of them have any regrets. Um, I think all of them... Uh, you know, they they remember what the old country was like. They remember um, having to pay bribes at the airport and at customs, um, and and the dangers. They felt that they had to put big walls on their compounds. Uh, they sort they, they they remember the the stratification of the Philippine class system, and 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 I think those difficulties from the old countries uh, linger in their minds, obviously much more vividly than in my mind, in the mind of my generation, because we didn't grow up there. Right? There is only one country that we know, and and, and it's America. And because we grew up here um, and and are able to see the country from the inside out, it gives us, I think, a clearer vision um, of skepticism for the country um, because we don't have an old country to compare it to. We don't have a mythology to compare it to. We only see the country in front of us um, and and see the challenges that it has posed. Um, for our elders. Um, so, for them, I think their perspective is one that, you know, they came here for their children. And now that they see their children ascent into a, a modicum of stability, uh, to them that is a success. Um, but I think to those of us in the second generation, uh, where we sort of have to live with uh, effectively guilt, uh, that the cost of our comfort came at the expense of the sacrifices our elders made, it raises the questions in our mind, why was it necessary for them to sacrifice in the first place? Uh, Why did they have to leave um, in the first place? And and I think the answer to that question, as I unravel and and kind of investigate in the book, um, is that the country we came to uh, played a big role in creating the conditions that led to the troubles in the Philippines, whether it was the disinvestment in the agricultural sector or the cementing of an aristocracy um, or the propping up of a dictator. Um, the, uh, the country that we ultimately placed our hopes in is the same country that in many ways um, compelled us to leave the Philippines. And I think that um, is ultimately the great irony of our migration story.
2: Great. Um, I wanted to delve a bit into the opening chapter where you write this unique sense of fear that can come from, quote, having wholly different understandings of reality with your mother. And this is something you gradually discover over the years you talk about, like the role of faith and religion and trust in your understanding of it all, kind of culminating into a difference that you see emerging with an understanding of reality. Um, Can you describe what that fear can feel like and specific examples where, you know, we like stories here um, that you found to be very specific to you or maybe quite universal to your audiences?
0: I think the fear is rooted in in, in helplessness. You know, I think um, it's rooted in, 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 in knowing that that the country that has given me my benefits has also taken away from the comforts of my elders and my mother in particular. Um, and, and I think, you know, my mother's, um, um, a, a descent into, into QAnon conspiracy theories and, and and support for Donald Trump. Um, while in, in one way, you know, it, 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 uh, was something that, um, uh, opened my eyes to really what was the, what was the scope of her sacrifice, right? It wasn't just a financial sacrifice, but it was an ideological sacrifice that she had, um, you know, gotten so deep into the, the dark heart of this country um, on my behalf that, that she had sort of come out the other side and, and kind of taken on um, so many of the ideologies about this country that I disagree with. Um, but I think part of the fear is the fact that, uh, you know, it's, she's not a rogue figure that she represents uh, this wide population of people, uh, who believe in the same thing uh, that she does, and and um, sort of reminds me of you know that this is not a um, uh, uh, this promised land that we were promised. Uh, this is not necessarily the destination point, um, but a country in the midst of a long running battle for its own soul. Um, and and I think a, a lot of the fear stems from the the question of you know how do we make the sacrifice worth it, you know, they, they, if our elders, um, sacrificed to come here and it turned out that this country wasn't the promised land we expected. Um, and you know, I mean the, 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 the moment that I think was really hard in my mind was kind of that those months, uh, there was kind of the, that, that the summer stretched last summer before the election, um, when things really felt like they were fraying in America. And I think a lot of America's, bones were exposed and a lot of the seams of our society were exposed where we we saw that the workers had no social safety net and private interests and corporations had uh, you know a disproportionate power over the lives um, and survivals of so many masses um, and we were barreling toward an election when we weren't quite sure if democracy would hold and I remember overhearing conversations amongst friends who openly wondered if we were going towards a civil war or a coup and there were just a lot of scary moments in that time. And I remember joking, almost half joking with my friends, like, where would we go if we had to leave? If we had to leave America, where would we go? You know, would we make the same decision as our elders and and leave for another country? Would we stay and fight for the country that our elders had given to us? Um, Those were the sorts of questions that I think we never imagined asking ourselves growing up in America. Um, and then when january sixth happened and and the, the insurrection um of the capitol in d c um happened, it kind of raised those fears again and the questions of you know had we come had we sort of joined this had we sort of come to a place thinking we had, we were stepping into this peaceful paradise, but actually stepped into this long running centuries old war between kind of the two sides of America, you know, the, 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 the side of inclusion, the side of exclusion. Um, and, and it's not, it's not really one that goes away. I think it's one that sort of hovers in the back of your mind. Um, but it's sort of reality that you have to accept, um, that this is my country. This is, uh, this is, um, this is what we signed up for, even if we didn't know it. And now we have to face the question of do we kind of hold the line and fight for the country, or do we play this dangerous hopscotch of trying to figure out, well, what's the next best country? What's the next best country? And bouncing from place to place until we eventually find some utopia that, that obviously doesn't exist.
2: Oh, boy. I feel like I can relate a little bit to the anecdote you just shared. I remember when January 6th happened, and... Um, my sister and I were talking about, we have relatives who were posting on WeChat about like how these are not Trump supporters, like them being the real Trump supporters. And no matter what political party you're in, I think what's really noticeable is the information streams that our elders receive and the realities they construct within those technological like ecosystems is different than the ones that we receive. And so in the end, I think I brought up, you know, certain points with with trying to smooth out the conversation, talk about it, why they hold these beliefs. And my parents just straight up told me, like, don't talk about it to avoid conflict. And I think that's really hard because family, essentially, they're supposed to be sort of held together. But instead, you feel like you almost have to censor yourself around the people that are most close to you. Um so I appreciate you sharing that story and, and writing more about that. Um, I, I want to talk about like, so you you talk about developing the sense of asking more questions and but you also have a, I can sense a huge sense of respect for the elders. Where and when did you develop this sense of asking more questions about the understanding of America in your life or the relationship between the Philippines and America? Was it in school or was it when you embarked on your journalism career?
0: I'd say it was even more recent than that. You know, I think em- embarking on my journalism career, you're sort of taught, or maybe maybe I wasn't taught this. Maybe this was just sort of the expectation I set for myself. But it's the idea that, you know, to be a, a, a useful journalist, you have to focus on others and, and not focus on yourself. And, and so in some ways, I'd actually actively, consciously ignored my own family story and my own sort of personal experiences. Um, and it wasn't until really the past few years, you know, I, I think the more I saw uh, my mom hit financial struggles, the more I saw my uncle hit financial struggles, and, and the more I saw that that this was just sort of a status quo and not not a temporary setback, um, it, it just made me think about their pasts and made me wonder how they felt about the state of things, especially as... My cousins and I, in many ways, validated their hopes. Um, I was wondering, I, I began to wonder how they reckoned with that distance between their downward trajectory and our upward trajectory. And, and I, you know, it didn't surprise me when they said that, you know, this was the whole point. Um, but I wanted to know more about sort of what that decision actually looked like, you know, and, and what, um, whether it was an easy decision, whether it was a hard decision all those things that go into like the migratory journey and i think from that th- those initial that initial curiosity of of just wanting to know more about the lives of my elders who i'd heard you know i knew my uncle was a was a was a rock star? I know he was in a band, but I didn't really know how famous he was until like I would hear from other Filipino friends who grew up in the Philippines. They're like, "Oh, Spanky Ragoz, your uncle? No way!" Um, and like it was just kind of as I got older and older, and and, and uh, my curiosity would just gradually increase. And and I'd had sort of this vague idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to eventually one day explore the history of my family. You know, I knew all these characters existed. Um, I mean, if I had to, maybe if I had to pinpoint. The moment I first that kind of that seed of curiosity was planted, I'd say it was in two thousand nine. It was after Cory Aquino died, and I was writing. I was in college, and I was writing for this, um, free alt, this free community weekly paper called Philippine Headlines in Sacramento, and I pitched the story on my granduncle Tomas Concepcion, who was a congressperson, um, and an artist who had been part of the revolutionary efforts, um, against Marcos and had known Cory Aquino and Nino Aquino and friends with them. Um, so I kind of wanted to do I wanted to visit him. He lived in Italy in, in just North of Rome, um, where he had his art studio. Um, and he was kind of my first access point to the history because he had, uh, written down in his own memoirs, um, these kind of ancestral trees that traced back to our our, um, our lineage as uh, sultanates, um, uh, a part of the Sultanate Dynasty in in uh, Mindanao in the south, um, and even before that, towards our history um, as part of the uh, Maranao tribe uh, in northern Mindanao. And it was while I was there uh, interviewing uh, my granduncle for this story I was writing um, that I uh, that I learned more about that history, and I had no idea. That we used to be Muslim, you know, several generations ago, and that I didn't even know we were from Mindanao. I'd always, just, I just kind of traced our history back to my great grandparents and, you know, who had moved to Manila, but I hadn't really thought much about anything before that. So it was my granduncle Tomas that had really opened the door to this vast history that I knew so little about. And it was while, um, you know, working with him on this, on the story I was writing, and then I eventually began helping him on, on the memoirs he, he was working on before he died. Uh, that entire process, I, I spent, um, um, I spent two trips with him about like three or four weeks combined over these two trips, um, where we got really close and we spoke a lot about our family history. That really laid the foundation um, of curiosity that, that would continue to build until I eventually began this book project.
1: So you've talked about kind of financial struggles. You've talked about, um, you know, kind of what members of the elder generation have to go through. Um, And so I'd like to talk about class a little bit. And you quote one of your relatives, Jed, kind of early in the book and, you know, explicit language warning, blah, 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 um, where you quote Jed, where he says, life was much easier back there. We had fucking maids. And you kind of, and as you tell the story, you know, you know, several members of your family are upper classes, maybe even just part of the Filipino elite, the people they worked with became politicians, they stayed in the Philippines became very clearly part of the elite. Yet, when they moved to the United States, they have financial struggles, they're kind of struggling to pay the bills, they work as um, they work in service jobs, Uh, they become part of the let's say, well, they're definitely in in, in the class structure, of the United States kind of lower on the ladder than they would have been in the Philippines. And that's not unique to your family. I think a lot of immigrants have this where you need to have a certain level of resources to make the move in the first place, right? But then they move to the United States where they're kind of lower down on the, on the class ladder. So how do you think class kind of meshes with our understanding of the immigrant narrative or how we differentiate between national and kind of global inequality?
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really good question and a really interesting point. I mean, right? We there's it's a cliche, right, that everyone's met that the Egyptian cab driver that used to be a doctor in his country, or the, the the guy that runs um, a food stand um, who used to be an engineer, um, and and the fact that those certifications don't transfer over. I mean, I think it, it reflects it, it reflects colonialism, right? Like, I think a person from the UK who is a doctor in London, comes to New York, will have a much easier time getting certification to be a doctor in New York, right? But it's often people from developing countries. We call them developing countries, but when we say developing countries, what we really mean is formally colonized countries, right? That's why they're developing, because they were undeveloped um, by, by colonization. And so it's people from formally, col- it's the people from formerly colonized countries that come here and have to face the setbacks. Whereas oftentimes people from more developed countries, from colonizer countries, will come here and they'll be able to kind of have this seamless transition um, oftentimes. And I think that's just kind of rooted in this global caste system racism of kind of the the, the European uh, colonial age that that continues to linger today. And uh, I mean, to to, to your point about um, what does this uh, sort of say about... the uh, the role class plays in, in how we think about this stuff. Um, I mean, uh, immigrant narratives um, are uh, are sort of predicated on the idea of sacrifice, right? And, and you made the point that oftentimes it's the, the, the immigrants who are able to make the jump in the first place are the ones that have the money to buy the plane ticket and withstand that impact. Um, and, and so what happens is, is it's kind of the system we have in place today where People from formerly colonized nations feel compelled to withstand a setback in order to be of a lower class in a colonizer nation. I mean, this is widening the gaps of inequality between people from the the, the side of the colonizers and people from the side of the colonized. Right? Like it's 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 you know, there's there's two different ways we can see the system working. Right? The system working could be that. People that families like mine um, don't feel the need to leave their countries and can live very happy, fulfilling comfortable lives in their homelands. And if they leave, it's because uh, it's a voluntary thing, not because they feel compelled, not because they feel they have to climb somewhere, but just because they want something different. Um, Or the other way it can work is if people, you know, are in a country that is troubled and that they have to flee from, um, that the places they land will support them and will allow them to transition and, and not have to really start over from scratch the way we do in this country and many other countries that, that take in refugees and, and, and other migrants. Um, so the, the kind of the, the way the immigration system is structured now um, reflects this 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 system that widens global inequality in a way that benefits the colonizer nations um, while, uh, while, while being a detriment to people from formerly colonized nations.
2: So there's... I mean, I've, I've definitely noticed this in the past year or so. There is a rise in, quote, like, quote, unquote, the Asian American experience, whether it's news coverage, book coverage, TV coverage. Um, it seems like there is a tide rising and a lot of people are jumping on this train and um, do you personally uh have any theories on why that's the case, for you personally? And more importantly, because this is something I think about sometimes too, what are your hopes, but also sometimes critiques about this rise um in, in this quote unquote Asian American experience and, and it's really popular now. It's like a buzzword.
0: I mean, I think I think I think it's two things. I think part of it is the numbers, right? Is that to be this this interest in exploring hyphenated identities is a very second generation interest, right? Like immigrants want to assimilate, right? They, they want to come over and become American and in many ways might come thinking their foreignness as a stigma. So oftentimes it's a second generation that was born American and doesn't have to worry about their birthright and doesn't have to worry about assimilating because we grew up, you know, as products of our country. And we're curious about wanting to know our histories and our pasts um, and, and, and knowing that there is no such thing as an just American, that you are a something American, right? That's, that's what we're sort of, that's the, the paradigm in which we naturally, that, that we naturally understand coming of age as a person of color in America is that you're not just American, you are something American, right? We all had classmates asking us, where are you from? What are you? You know, and like, what do you mean? And you have to be like, where did your parents come from? You know, Um, so this is just something that's internalized, that we have to figure out who are we beyond just being American. And I think the numbers wise, you know, those of my generation, it's we're we're the children of the great wave. Right. Our parents came when the gates opened up in 1965. And that you know change the, the 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 physical face of America, um and so now there's just so many more second generation immigrants from formerly colonized nations from Asia um, than there were a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, so I think there's a numbers thing where there's just a wave of second generation people from Asian countries whose parents came from Asian countries that are interested in exploring their past. Um, And I think the other element of that too, is we are just in a moment in American history where we are interested in reckoning with our past, right? Like I don't think um, this AAPI exploration movement um, is disconnected from, uh, you know, the black lives matter and and Ferguson movements and and the 1619 project movements where we are at a moment um, where we are reckoning with, uh, how we came to the state of America today um, and and what that means for all of us and, and, and how we are not um, that we are not the sort of white male country that our founders intended when they wrote the constitution but a much more cosmopolitan multicultural diasporic society um, and what does that mean in terms of what my hopes are for that my, my hopes are is that in the future we don't have to use terms like Asian American I feel like the term Asian American is a term used out of out of out of yearning, out of out of vacuum, out of absence. Right? We we use the term Asian American because we have to unify our collective powers, because as individual Filipino or Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese or Persian or whatever Americans, perhaps we don't quite have the power to spread. To, to, to move the needle or to speak for ourselves or to um, uh, have any sort of political influence and in, in that it requires us in many ways creating this somewhat arbitrary group, right? Like the the, the Filipino experience um, in a lot of ways is much more similar to uh, the Mexican experience, the Mexican-American experience than it is with the Chinese or the, Vietnam, the Vietnamese experience, much less like the Indian experience or... Any experience of, of Middle Easterners, right? Like Asia is such a wide, sprawling, diverse continent that is sort of just defined by lines drawn on maps by people long before us. But we sort of we we were forced to create this unified identity because because we were all just sort of newcomers, and we needed to forge uh, a strength in numbers, and so we needed to create these bonds across our different ethnicities and across our different histories, right, our, 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 we do not necessarily share much of a collective experience before coming to America. And then coming to America, that's in many ways where our collective experience as Asian Americans begin. So so I think the formation of that term, Asian Americans, the idea of Asian Americans was one formed by necessity, right, Out of pragmatism, um, b- because it was something that we had to define ourselves with once we were in America, but I think in the future, um, and I think, you know, I, I, I tried to apply this when, when, for example, our, our style guide, when we're writing stories at, uh, at BuzzFeed, uh, we try to limit using the term Asian or Latin as much as possible and speak specifically, you know, are we talking about, you know, Chinese communities? Are we talking about Guatemalan communities? Um, and, and I think sort of the future of how we think about identity and how we think about um, what it means to be in this melting pot um, is one where we think specifically about those collective experiences of specific diasporas and ethnic groups and, and recognizing how different those experiences can be from one another.
2: I really appreciate your style of guy at Buzzfeed then, because, <laughs> because I'm not going to lie, Albert. Um, I've gone on this journey related to, quote, my Asian American identity. You know, I grew up not really knowing I could claim the term American because my parents were of the sense like, oh, you're never going to look like them. So you're not part of them. So for a long time, I thought I was just, quote, Asian, whatever that meant in the English language. Right. And then I went to college and my roommate was from mainland China. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, I'm so different. Than, than her, and that's when I claimed the term Asian American. But then later on, I realized it's a term that's sometimes even weaponized within the community itself. And, and there's a lot of settler colonialism within the Asian American community, quote unquote. And as a writer, I realized the best pieces of writing that I resonated have been books like Minor Feelings by Kathy Hong Park or Pachinko by Min Jin Lee because they're so specific. To the point where it's universal and i you know i'm cautious about generalizing and i know a lot of asian americans are also taking this time to like corporatize the identity too or like you know it is the time right and uh it can be controversial but right now i'm in this like mental phase where uh in my head i will take on the identity when I see it as appropriate, and I will also let go of it when it is appropriate. And I know identities are created by humans for a specific purpose at a specific time. And me as a writer, I will try to be as specific as I can, so that I do not speak on behalf of people. I also, you know, liberate myself when I am specific. And I that's, that's the point of view that I have, I have a very complicated relationship with quote, Asian American identity. I know Nicholas also grew up as like, Asian American outside of America often so um, yeah I'm glad you're exploring it in this book because um, there is no universal and that's why we need more books to tell all the nuances so that everyone can pick at the library not the one book but one of the many books that has those stories
0: and it, it's such it, it, it's so it's such a luxury to not have to carry the weight of representation like if I had written this book in like I don't know 1872 it would have been like, oh, here's an Asian American book, right? But because I'm writing this book today, um, where there are not just many other books by people from Asian diasporas, but many books by Filipino writers, words that I don't have to sit here and speak for every Filipino American out there. I can just speak for my specific experience. So it's like, my book is not a Filipino book. My book is a book about growing up as a Filipino in the Bay Area whose family came from Mindanao, you know, and to be able to narrow that down as much as possible, as you said, Helen, it creates for a much richer writing experience and reading experience, um, but but it also signifies the progress we make in representation, where it's like, I, I think, uh, you know, I think we sometimes think of, the sometimes there can be this um, fear about crab in a barrel mentality, where it's like, is there only enough space for, you know, one, uh, one person of this, of this type, of this kind, and I think the progress we're seeing is that that space is growing, and that that it's that there are a, there's enough room for every experience. You know, I think my favorite line in the book, in my book, was that um, my family's um, experiences, but one thread in a vast tapestry, um, and it takes a lot of pressure off to not have to feel like you're speaking for for everybody. So I have I have one more
1: question. and I want to end with the Philippines. Um, You know, you return to the country um, to write your 2017 article for BuzzFeed, kind of looking for uh, looking for right and wrong in the Philippines, kind of talk about the popularity of Duterte in the Philippines. Um, Obviously, we're kind of coming to the end of the Duterte administration. Um, And I wanted to kind of ask kind of how the members of your family, the people who you talk to, for the article, or just people like that. What's happened in the Philippines over the past five years uh, for people like them?
0: You know, I think it's... Duterte era has has been so interesting to watch from afar because I think it. my efforts to understand it, it in some ways inspired the book because my efforts to understand it showed me how distant i was from the philippines and how little i understood about what it's like to live there and how my own expectations for what it means to be in a functioning society and, and what progress looks like um is is it's very unique to my own um american centrism and the full so, so in the philippines you know folks i speak to who are I mean, I think I think Duterte is obviously a very polarizing figure, right? Where where the the people who love him are very vocal about that, about saying he's you know one of the greatest, maybe the greatest president the Philippines has ever had, and has brought much change, lower crime, you know, eroded systems of corruption that seemed inevitable. While um, whereas the people who who don't like him point out that. He's he's a tyrant in many ways, an authoritarian who has silenced the press and and specifically targeted um, journalists like Maria Ressa who have who have pointed out um, the 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 flaws of his you know not just the flaws the 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 murderous um, aspects of his regime. Um, So it's complicated, right? Where it's like when I think about like like even the people I talk to who find that Duterte is an authoritarian who is driving the philippines toward a a a really dark dystopian future will concede that they don't they you know one benefit is that they no longer have to pay bribes at customs or that they no longer feel scared walking outside at night um and many of them still feel that way even though they will say that the duterte presidency has has been a, a failure on balance but I think the challenge is that in a country where the problems are so deeply rooted, it becomes hard to measure what this progress looks like, look like, and 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 what what costs have to be paid to achieve that progress. Um, and, and so, look, you know, as we do come to the end of the administration, like I don't, I don't know how to think about it. You know, I, I still am. I, I feel like I am not much closer to understanding the 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 sort of role Duterte will be playing in the long arc of Philippine history than I was five years ago. You know, I, I think his I think history will show that his that his efforts to combat corruption were perhaps not quite as successful as as it might have seemed early on that a lot of the systems he it, that he you know promised to undermine um, were not as wiped out as it might have seemed like was going to happen early on in the tenure, and that at the end of the day, he will leave office with the country in not much of a different state than what he stepped in, except with journalists facing criminal charges and many people dead uh, from a drug war that doesn't seem to have had um much benefit to the country. Um the, the that's the long answer. The short answer is I don't know. Um, you know, I, I haven't been back there in, in in um what is it now? Four four years, five years? Four years. You know, I, I think the old me. I think if you would ask me this question in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, before before I took that reporting trip to the Philippines at the start of his of his term, I would have given you a much more confident clear-minded, sophisticated answer about what Duterte means for the Philippines. But I think after reporting on it over the last, you know, four or five years now, um, the thing that's become clearest to me is how, how little I know and how little I can understand. Because at the end of the day, I spend my days thinking about America. And I spend my days thinking about how how American policy affects my life and the life of people around me than I, I do, frankly, thinking about the, the, the prospects of the Philippines, right? Other than reading some newspaper headlines in the morning, I haven't set foot in the Philippines in a few years, and I'll talk to people about what they think about Uterte, but I know better now than to have any confidence in, in, in my diagnosis of, of a country um, that, that I, I, I know much less about uh, than, than my own country. Um, but I will be following the election closely and I I hope to write about it. And I hope to um, see what happens with Robredo, with Pacquiao, with um, Sarah Duterte, Bon Bon Marcos. I mean, it's the, it's the cast of Carrie, like the, the, the the thing that I think um, I'm I'm most interested in seeing this, this time around is that historically we've seen that political dynasties, uh, you know, run, run the Philippines and that the only times somebody has beaten the political dynasty is when they're a celebrity like Joseph Estrada and, you know, Manny Pacquiao now hopes to fill that, that position. Um, and, and I'm, I guess I'm just curious, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching this election more as an observer than as an expert. So
1: with that, thank you for listening to the interview with Albert Samha author of Concepcion and Immigrant Families Fortunes. A couple final questions, Albert. Where can people find your work and what's your next
0: project? Yeah, um Albertsamaha.com, A-L-B-E-R-T-S-A-M-A-H-A. That'll just sort of have a, a archived compilation of my books and, and, and my writings from, from various places. Um next project. I have a few ideas, but I don't really know. I don't really know. You know, maybe I'll explore maybe I'll explore the other side of my family tree. Um, maybe I'll do something entirely different. Um, I've got a few ideas in mind, um, but I'm going to give myself the next six months to a year to kind of let things simmer, uh, hit a little reset, do some reading for pleasure, uh, now that I don't have to read, um, a bunch of history research books, um, and kind of let my mind wander. I'd like to explore my inner child for a few months before, before committing to a project. Um, but they'll come, they're, they're going to come. My goal is by the end of next year, I'd like to have a, a general idea of what the next book will be. Well, I look forward to
1: hearing more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReview to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find counts other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, thanks again to Helen for joining me on the show. Uh, Helen, where can people find you?
2: Thanks, Nick. Uh, You can find me at Helen Lee Writes, H-E-L-E-N-L-I Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S on Twitter.
1: Um, We hope you're listening to the Asia Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Samya Roy, author of Mountain Tales, Love and Loss in the Municipality of Castaway Belongings. But before then, thank you so much, Albert, for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.